there's more emerging infectious diseases that are being reported. And I think a big reason for this is because a lot of these are zoonotic in nature, which means they come from some kind of animal and then transfer into human populations. I think a lot of it is just that intersection between populations of animals and populations of humans. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. You just heard Dr. Lauren Gardner, engineering professor and co-director of the Johns Hopkins Center for System Science and Engineering, explain why more viruses are emerging today and are likely to in the future. Interactive maps and dashboards, like the now famous one created by Dr. Gardner's team at Johns Hopkins to track the worldwide coronavirus pandemic, are becoming powerful tools to monitor and respond to outbreaks. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigate how Johns Hopkins University's dashboard project evolved into a scientific phenomenon and the most authoritative source for the latest coronavirus numbers and trends. Dr. Gardner, welcome to the Esri's The Science Aware podcast. We're delighted to be talking to the woman behind the most recognized COVID-19 dashboard. On January 22nd, which is more than three months ago, and just two days after the first confirmed case of the COVID-19 infection in the U.S., you and your team of two graduate students at the Center of System Science and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins University launched one of the very first dashboards to track in near real time the global impact of the pandemic. And today we see that it is perhaps the most recognized symbol out there of the outbreak, it has been a primary source of information for people across the world. It's been used in major news media, government agencies, public health officials, private industry, and I believe even the White House. And in fact, I want to ask you, is it true that it is displayed on the wall of the U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary's Operations Center? I don't know if it is at the current moment, but it definitely has been in the past. There's evidence of it in quite a few newspaper articles of Vice President Pence standing in the office with the dashboard behind him. Indeed, yes, I've seen those myself. And I'm sure you've been asked this next question many times, but for our listeners, uh, looking back, what motivated you to create this resource and why did it feel important at the time? Yeah, I, I have been asked this question a few times. It's it's a really good one. So we first created this actually for the research community. And so when we're not building dashboards, which was all of my life until January 22nd, we model infectious disease risk. And this is actually a really data poor field. And so we were following this this COVID outbreak, which was not called COVID at the time, in mid-January when it was just a few hundred cases in China. And um, my, my two graduate students, who are both Chinese, were just you know personally very interested in it and, and following it and tracking it and building out a spreadsheet. And we were just discussing it at one of our regular lab meetings. And I saw this as a really unique opportunity to start building out a data set on an emerging infectious disease in real time and share it and make it available to the research community for people like myself and our group that need this kind of data to build models of infectious disease. And so we immediately decided to continue documenting it, at least at the time we thought we'd build this out daily. 
and and share this information. So the focus was really collecting the data and sharing the data. And then we thought, let's build a dashboard to visualize the data that we're also collecting, just a really natural complement to spatial epidemiology. And, and so we built the dashboard that night and then the next day shared it publicly with the link to where all of the data was also being stored behind it. And so the, the real motivating and driving factor for this whole thing from day one has very much been just open science. Your, your work has focused on fighting the spread of infectious diseases for some time, including dengue fever, the Zika virus. You've also worked to suppress the resurgence of the measles in the U.S. And now you've been central to these efforts to respond to the current and very serious outbreak of COVID-19. But, you know, you are a system science and engineering professor, not an epidemiologist and being a systems engineer myself by training. I have to ask, how are system science and engineering concepts applied to epidemiology? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I am an engineer by training. All of my degrees are engineering, actually transportation engineering, which is really just fancy mobility. So I think the thing that draws me to all of this is actually the underlying human nature of the problems. In transportation engineering, we we basically just model how and why people make decisions. And, and we model this as um, essentially a lot of individuals moving around what can be represented as a network, their own purposes and objectives. And And in some ways, this is just kind of a big diffusion process of things spreading. And so with infectious diseases, uh, for me, it just was so obvious that human mobility, human movement, human nature was such an obvious, critical component to the spread of infectious disease and understanding how these different transportation systems and mobility systems contribute to infectious disease risk was was a really natural direction for me to take uh, my background and and knowledge from transportation network modeling. But the thing that I think is even more interesting is the extension to all of the other critical factors at play when you're talking about infectious diseases. So on one hand, you have the virus itself that has certain characteristics and properties, and then you have the host carrying the virus, often a human, but it can be lots of other things. And then you have all these other things, these, you know, besides the transportation systems, you have socio-demographics and socioeconomics and climate, environment, land use, population data, and, and trying to understand how all of these really complex dynamic factors all contribute to these risk profiles that we see in these diffusion processes that happen with infectious disease spread, uh, I think is definitely an engineering problem and it's very much a systems problem. I want to mention that I think a day or two after you launched the dashboard, it was January 23rd, you said, we built this dashboard because we think it is important for the public to have an understanding of the outbreak situation as it unfolds with transparent data sources. How has this project exceeded your expectations? Has this project realized your vision? Tell us about that. Yes, I would say it's definitely exceeded all expectations. Our expectations were probably pretty small, I guess, when we started. I was hopeful that the small research community would actually care and want to use this data. We massively underestimated the interest of the general public in following the progression of this outbreak. 
And that has been far greater than I think we could have ever imagined. I think that's really interesting. And it really, to me, speaks to this kind of desperation for trusted information in, in today's society, where there's just so much misinformation propagation from questionable sources, which is really dangerous in a situation like this, that I think people are really actively looking for information that they can trust. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, there are now over a billion, uh, you know, individual requests or interactions with the dashboard, probably a few million come from me daily. Can you tell who's accessing and using the information? How are they using it? I don't know exactly who, of course. Um, we actually don't even have a number on the number of individuals. We only know the request. And I think now we're getting somewhere between three and four and a half billion requests a day. Most of it is just individuals clicking around on the dashboard, but there's definitely a lot of requests for the feature layers that we make available that other groups and emergency response groups are pulling directly into their own internal dashboards or kind of internal systems and using for policy decision-making. We know companies are using it to early on in the U.S. to decide when they should close their offices and tell their employees to work from home. And we know it's being used, you know, all the way up at our U.S. government departments and lots of places in between. But for me, the really exciting thing, even though the numbers are smaller, is that it's being really widely used amongst the research community to build infectious disease models and learn things early on in the outbreak and still today about what are the really the characteristics and properties of, of this virus, how does it spread, and, and looking at all sorts of different other behaviors and relationships between the disease and, and some of the other factors we were speaking of earlier. You know, disease is obviously a very spatial temporal problem. And I wanted to ask you about real time. We say we update this data in real time. What do we really mean? How frequently is that? We actually update the data every hour. So my student in Shandong and I were basically the two that started this, and he was really the mastermind behind it. And he actually had previously worked at Esri for a bit, and he's a total whiz with Esri technology and, and dashboard development. And so it was not even a question what we were going to use to do it. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be updated, but we do allow for an update every hour. So if there is a change on a data point somewhere in the map, then we will capture that. And so it, at the moment that is happening, and I think it does actually change almost hourly, hopefully that will stop at some point. Um, but it's, it's very much real time. I know you've predicted, we'll talk a little bit about that, the various movements and trends of this disease, looking at the data. Have things surprised you in terms of the, the, maybe the speed of spread or the direction of spread or the nature of spread? I I guess we were, no one was, I don't want to say no one was expecting, but maybe hopeful that it wouldn't be as bad as it is. You know, even in the first week or so, I was modeling this and using parameters that I kind of just at the time were my best guess. and those parameters actually are still pretty relevant to this thing. And so there hasn't actually been any really drastic outcome that we've learned that has kind of 
turned on its head what I thought about this outbreak. I think we're still learning a lot in terms of who it really affects, why it affects certain groups more severely. So there's still a lot that we're learning. You mentioned that you source and import a lot of data regularly. How do you decide which data to introduce into the dashboard? Yeah, this is definitely the biggest challenge associated with running this dashboard is what is the data that we feed into it. It is constantly changing and evolving as would be expected as this outbreak is turned to an epidemic, which turned to a pandemic. And so when new regions of the world are affected, the reporting sources change. One of the biggest shifts, I guess, that I've seen is when we started reporting this, we were pretty much getting our data, at least outside of China, from local media reports because there was no government public health authority webpage on COVID at a county level, a state level, or a national level anywhere. So we were getting, so certain locations were confirming cases, and then there was a local newspaper article that would come out of it well before it got fed up to the WHO daily situation report. So we initially were collecting data in this very kind of messy way, and now we're getting to this other extreme where so many parts of the world have been so affected that the local public health authorities have actually built out their own dashboards and are providing data for their local U.S. county. And we have dashboards at the U.S. state level, and we have dashboards hosted by multiple different countries all over the world. And so whenever possible now, we want to get our data directly from these primary public health sources. How can you help people trust models? There have been you know, varying outcomes, obviously, depending on inputs, assumptions, algorithms, data. Help us understand how to think about models and how to best use them. Yeah, it's tricky. I think the first thing is it's really important to recognize that models are, are representations of the real world, but they're simplified representations of the real world. They're never going to be able to actually replicate and capture all the nuances of reality. And so because of this, you know, there's this trade-off of models being realistic, but unfeasible to actually build and run for something that we can actually efficiently develop and use, but is going to lack some of the realism. And so we, we tried to find a balance, the best balance that we can, but I think it's, you know, it is important to understand that it's the best representation of reality, but with that comes some simplifying assumptions that are necessary. And so, and the other thing is that models are heavily reliant on good data and, and they're only going to be as good as the data that's fed into them, which is why it's so important for data to be made available to researchers and for that data to be accurate and reliable, as accurate and reliable as, as is possible. Um, but I think the, the thing also to note is that we can't do certain experiments in real life. So models are really the only way we can get this kind of glimpse into the future of what may happen and look at potential future scenarios that may play out and then be able to plan accordingly for them. And so if we don't build models, then you just have to wait and see what happens, which often 
that, then it's too late to do anything. So there's a huge value in them, but it needs to be understood that they're not real life. They're our best representation of it in the environment, the setting that we're in. You, you might have heard the term in business that's used digital twin to originate in manufacturing to represent manufactured systems and products. And then it was sort of used to talk about anything that's digitized from a physical world to a digital world, including cities and so on. My question is, does, does the academia use this term or recognize this term? And it strikes me that models are really digital twins of complex dynamic systems that the world is. I wonder if you have any comments about that. Yeah, I completely agree that that's exactly what they are. It's not a term that we use, but I think I should start because it's great. <laughs> that's exactly what they are. I mean, yeah, it's a computer model, right? A computational model of something in the real world. I give the example all the time when I'm teaching, you know, it's the same for transportation as it is for epidemiology. So, you know, in transportation, we build models to make decisions about where billions of dollars of infrastructure should be allocated. So should we build a bridge, you know, in this part of the city or in this part of the city? And you can build a transportation model and you can run it and you can see which one helps reduce congestion the most or whatever, you know, objective you have. What you can't do is go build a bridge in one location and then see how it goes and then tear it down and then be like, oh, the first bridge was better. Let's let's rebuild that one. So you can't do that. So you need models. And the same goes for an outbreak. You know, you can't just go start an outbreak somewhere and let it spread around the city and try closing schools and see if that helps. And then start the whole experiment over in another city. But instead of closing schools, you, you know, closed shopping centers. Like none of these experiments are ethical and moral or, you know, at all even allowed. And so you can't answer these questions without modeling these kinds of problems. Well, speaking of complex dynamic systems, researchers and epidemiologists are looking at climate data to help understand and forecast the spread of infectious diseases. Why? What does climate have to do with this? Yeah, so we're we're looking at this as well. We have a project funded by NASA to specifically look for climate and seasonality related to COVID. So when you talk about climate, its impact on infectious disease, it, it depends on the disease you're talking about. So really obvious ones are when you're talking about vector-borne diseases, things like dengue and Zika and and chikungunya and yellow fever. They spread through mosquitoes. Those diseases are not problematic in parts of the world where you don't have mosquitoes. And mosquitoes only live in certain places with certain climates, usually more tropical regions. And so obviously climate has a direct impact on the diseases that spread through certain vectors where those vectors only have, there's, there's only kind of suitable habitats for these vectors in certain climate conditions. Now, when you're talking about things like COVID or flus or respiratory viruses, it's, it's different. And this is still very much an open research problem of uh, really understanding what is the role of temperature and humidity and things like that on these respiratory viruses. You know, there is some evidence, but it's sometimes contradictory, pointing to these viruses being easier to transmit in certain humidity levels or certain temperatures. But that's something that well, people are still looking into, and I, I don't think it's quite resolved. 
Is there research that points to acceleration of these epidemiological disasters like there are with other types of natural disasters, hurricanes, uh, wildfires, etc.? And if so, what do we know about that? There are. There's more emerging infectious diseases that are being reported, and it's increasingly the case. And I think a big reason for this is because a lot of these are zoonotic in nature, which means they come from some kind of animal and then transfer into human populations in parts of, in new locations around the world, you know, knocking down forests, things like that, and kind of taking over these natural habitats where they have new close encounters with animals that weren't previously, you know, connected to humans. And there's all sorts of opportunities for introduction of viruses that were circulating in these these different environmental settings, these different animal populations that first get introduced to humans. And so I think a lot of it is just land use changes happening around the world and that intersection between populations of animals and populations of humans. So the dashboard, as we discussed, and you've experienced, has been an amazing effort and is providing a true public service. I want to ask you whether there were lessons learned through this process. I think the most obvious thing is it's really rewarding. So as a scientist, I don't think we normally have the opportunity to work on things where so many people care. It's sad, but it's very true that I regularly do research and work and publish papers. And, you know, I think they're really exciting findings. My students do, us, our small research community, my degree. But the general public never really gets engaged or, or interested um, or affected by, by what we're doing. And so that's been definitely one of the, the most obvious and significant kind of takeaways from this is how engaged the general public is with this whole process and the data that we're collecting and also the modeling that's coming out of it. You know, you walk around and everyone on the news and at the coffee shops, well, when people used to be at coffee shops, talking about all these epidemiological parameters now. And, and so I think that that's, that's been kind of, that's been really inspiring I'd like to mention that scientists, of course, you know, because you're one, around the world are working around the clock on you know, vaccines, therapeutics, data models, treatments. And we definitely need science and technology to help us prevail against this pandemic. There's no doubt about that. Yet there is skepticism towards science and technology. How would you help us understand the value and importance of research and evidence and data? Yeah, I think it's just best to show by example. I think the best thing is just to continue to provide as accurate information as possible to the public as transparently as possible, and then continue to show evidence for how data and science is successfully informing policies that are impacting people's lives for the better. And just to continue doing the science, helping policymakers make the right decisions, and and just marketing and advertising that process. And the thing that also is happening more than I ever remember before is anytime I turn on the news, like there's a scientist on CNN. And I think that's really great that those are the voices that are getting heard, at least through some of the media outlets. 
um, and that continuing to do that to make sure that the information that's being provided to the general public is continuing to come from the people that know what they're talking about and and just continuing to show examples and show evidence of its value is is all that we can really do. Well, I very much appreciate your time. I really enjoyed this incredible discussion. Thank you very much for everything you do and for being here with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Dr. Lauren Gardner for explaining how interactive web-based maps and dashboards can be powerful tools in fighting the spread of outbreaks and diseases that threaten public health and the global economy. To learn more about COVID-19 resources for business and government, visit esri.com forward slash COVID-19.